My name is Pastor Mike LaRusso. I'm from High River, Alberta, uh, pastor of the, well, one of the pastors at the High River Baptist Church. I'm so glad to be here with you. Um, also appreciate the, the invitation from your pastor, John. Um, so glad uh, to be able to give him a bit of a break so he doesn't have to spend his time in Disneyland writing sermon notes. It's just terrible. That would be like the definition of most terrible vacation ever, right? So I'm glad I could fill in in that way. Uh, we are going to be in the Old Testament today. If you can find the book of 2 Samuel, we'll be in the Old Testament. 2 Samuel uh, chapter 9. 2 Samuel chapter 9. Oh my goodness, I just told, pulled the top off that. Uh, that's what I'm looking for. Let's see, Second Samuel chapter 9, and I will read the chapter for us. I just want to say, uh, too, that I'm, I'm very glad for churches like Redemption Church uh, and the focus that is here on, on expository preaching. And so I'm very glad at that, and I hope that... Um, will all be different for having been here this morning under the preaching of God's word. This is 2 Samuel chapter 9, uh, the whole chapter. It says, And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called... Um, and, and they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Mekir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Then King David said, or sent, sorry, and brought him from, from the house of Mekir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of, your, of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then... The king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to, to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson, and you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandsons have, may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had fifteen 
sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that the Lord, the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he, ha- now he was lame in both of his feet. This is the word of the Lord. This morning we're going to be looking at, uh, I think, one of the Bible's biggest themes. Okay? We're going to be looking at grace. Grace is going to be, and has already been this morning, the theme of our song that we'll sing for all of eternity. As God's redeemed, we'll sing of God's grace. Why do we need to think about it here this morning? I think the reason is you were created, each of you were created to know and enjoy God, you were actually created to stand in awe before the wonder of His glory, to receive His love, and then to respond in worshipful praise. This is what you were made for. And looking intently into the Word of God ought to be like keeping kindling on the fires of our worship. And some of the best kindling, some of the Kindling that will sustain the flames of our worship the longest is the knowledge of the grace of God, especially in salvation. Because he who has been forgiven much loves much. Not only will grace, however, be the theme of our song and invoke our worship, but grace also, for those who study it intently, will begin to shape their lives. God's people who relish in God's grace will and ought to become an embodiment of that grace. God's people ought to be the most gracious and merciful people on the planet. We who know what grace is is having received it. And so, not only for the sake of our worship, but also for our lives and our sanctification and growth in holiness, that we would be gracious people. The passage we just read, or are going to be looking at this morning, tells us a story. Okay? It's the story of radical, indestructible, Some might even say scandalous grace. The story, however, is situated where it is to function kind of like a scaled-down version of the big story of redemption that runs from start to finish throughout the whole Bible. That being said, we're meant to use this little story to help us understand our position in the big story of God's grace. And as we do that, there are at least three essential qualities of God's grace that I want you to see this morning. There are at least three essential qualities of God's grace that I want you to see. First, God's grace reaches out. That is, there is an outward orientation to God's grace. Grace 
reaches out by its very nature. Next, grace lands on those who are unworthy. And finally, grace is radical. Grace is lavish and it's rich and deep and superabounding. Now, there's a bit of history that we need to catch up on if you're going to fully appreciate the text. And at this point in time, in David's rule, he's already been on the throne for a few short years as, as king. Israel did not always have a king. Not that God didn't in, intend to give them one, but they needed, he needed it to be in his timing and according to his law. And the people grew impatient and they wanted a king, but not the sort of king that God had in mind. No, they wanted a king like all the other nations. And so God gave them exactly what they wanted. And Saul was made the very first king of Israel. At first, he looked rather promising. But later, his incredible pride and arrogance eventually cost him everything. God rejected Saul and had Samuel instead anoint another man in his place. However, this time, instead of a man of great external pedigree like Saul, God chose a humble young shepherd boy. By God's providence, David was actually invited into the court of Saul for a time where he began to grow in popularity. And it isn't long before David's popularity rating began to get to Saul, you see. And then Saul rather upset by this, goes on a long, obsessive hunt for David's life. Saul, along with Jonathan and others of his son, they meet their bitter end in a battle against the Philistines. And after a short period of time, David is finally installed as Israel's new king. Chapters 5 to 10 of 2 Samuel, they tell us how David came to the height of his power. Okay, that's what that's all about. Let's consider our first point then. Grace reaches out. Look, look down at verse 1. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. And the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Mekir, the son of Almiel at Lodabar. I want you to get a sense of the weight of what we just read there. You see, David 
is at the very height of his power. And the question he asks in this position, the question he asks is, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now the word actually rendered kindness is a very important word in the Bible. It's the word hesed. Okay? And it's most frequently translated in the Bible by the words mercy or loving kindness or favor. And it's used to speak of a, a covenantal, loyal sort of love. And if you look down at verse 3, we see that David actually has in mind not just, not just any kind of love that he wants to show, but the kindness of God. He wants to show God's chesed, his merciful, covenantal love for his people. If you look a couple of chapters back in 1 Samuel, or 2 Samuel, sorry, a couple of chapters back, 2 Samuel chapter 7, you see that David actually had been personally embraced by God's covenantal love. And now he wishes to extend that love to others. The passage seeks to give us a clear picture of what God's grace looks like, what it is, how it operates. What David does here runs completely contrary to every human convention. It's countercultural, both in David's day and in ours. There's a a principial clash between what we see here and what we see exercised out there and the, the social norms of our culture. In David's day, the usual practice, rather than showing kindness, was to kill off all the remnant of the, the previous dynasty in order to avoid any future conflict. That's what you did as soon as you took the throne. David does the exact opposite. You see, and he seeks to show kindness and he seeks to make peace. Typically, men with power tend to use their power to oppress or to exploit those beneath them. Okay? At the very least, they forget about the little guy, don't they? He gets brushed aside, pushed to the margins, as it were. David seeks to be different. However, David's, David's actions in this text are not modeled, see, they're not modeled after the fallen ethics of the dog-eat-dog -dog world of his day. You see, no, David is seeking to demonstrate the kindness of God. In a sense, this is what the, the author of the book of Samuel wants you to see. He wants you to see this clearly. Earlier in the book of 1 Samuel, we come across the song of Hannah, the song of Hannah, her praise to the Lord after she's blessed with a child, right? And her song actually serves to set up the whole book of Samuel. 
by bringing to the fore many of the, the central themes of the book of Samuel. You see, in, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 6 to 10, we read this. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust and he lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones. But the wicked shall be cut off in the darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces against them. He will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. You see, in a, in a moment, when we look at David's gracious action towards Mephibosheth, the author means for you to go back in your mind to Hannah's song and to see all kinds of connections, you see. Having seen those connections, your, your heart is supposed to be stirred in worship to God. This is the sort of king that Yahweh is. This is your God and how He acts. And this, when at His best, is the sort of king that David aspired to be. You see, modeled after God Himself. What I want you to see in these first few verses, however, is the outward reach of grace. God's grace is not satisfied until it finds one to be spent on. David, moved by love, begins asking the simple question in verse 1. Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Then in verse 3, after Ziba, who became a manager of Saul's estate, came to him, he asked him the same question again. Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for uh, the kindness of God sorry, to him? And yet again, in verse 4, David asks the same basic question, though in the condensed form. Where is he? Where is he? Three times, David asks. And he's not going to stop asking until his grace finds a recipient. The, the, the grace of God is, is irresistible. It is unstoppable grace. And it means to find a recipient. Notice that it is David. You see, it is David, who takes the initiative in the passage, Mephibosheth, doesn't even have the sense enough to throw himself on David's mercy until David first calls for him. And so it is with us. Unless the Lord effectually calls us, unless the Father first draws us, we would never come at all. Aren't you glad that God in His infinite mercy 
He sought you out. He didn't just sit passively with his, with his arms crossed, muttering to himself, oh, I'll, I'll be here the whole time whenever you decide to come. No. He sought you. And he would not be satisfied until he made you an object of his mercy. What sovereign love is this that seeks me out, a, a condemned sinner? And it calls me, it calls me until it's made me its very own. This outward orientation, this sovereign grasp of grace is exactly what Paul has in mind when he says this in Philippians. We've already been in that book. Not that I have already obtained this or laid hold of it. That's an important word in this passage, to lay hold of it, to grasp it. Or am already perfect. What do I do? I, I press on to, to make it my own. Why? Because Christ Jesus made me his own. He laid hold of me. You see, Christ Jesus obtained Paul for himself. Paul was on his way to Damascus. In the midst of his hatred and rage against God's people. When suddenly... He felt the grasp of God's sovereign grace. Grace, indeed, still reaches out today. Secondly, a second essential quality of grace is that grace lands upon the unworthy. Look at verses 5 and 6. We are finally introduced to Mephibosheth. We're finally introduced to Mephibosheth. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, said to Saul, son of Jonathan, sorry, son of Saul, came to David. And he, and he fell on his face and he paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. Now, Mephibosheth is maybe one of the lesser-known characters of the Bible. Maybe, maybe you haven't even heard about him until this morning. He gets a pretty unique name, right? I don't know. Any pregnant moms here? Mephibosheth? It's a good name. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe you want to slap that one on a poor child. Ziba tells us three things about him that help us get a good mental picture, okay? First, he's the son of Jonathan, okay? David's friend, who is also the son of Saul. When Saul had begun his hunt for David, Jonathan showed him kindness, after which he and David made a covenant together that David would not cut off the descendants of Jonathan. This is the covenant that they made. Second, we learn that Mephibosheth is crippled in his feet. And in 2 Samuel chapter 4-4, we learn that when the, when the Philistines killed Saul and Jonathan, and they took Jezreel, Mephibosheth's nurse took him in her arms 
okay, when he was just a small child, perhaps maybe only five years old, took him in her arms and she fled the city. Okay? And while she was making her escape, she dropped the young prince and he was made a cripple. I mean, we can assume also from this story that he was an orphan, okay? Because Jonathan, his father, is killed, and there's, there's no mention anywhere of his mother at all. Finally, the third thing, we learn that Mephibosheth lives in relative obscurity, okay? In a sort of exile, you can think of it. He's a societal reject the remnants of the old dynasty. And he lives on the other side of the Jordan, the house of Mekir at Lodabar, where he's trying to etch out a life, out, out of the spotlight, trying to keep a low profile. One Bible commentator says this, his life, Mephibosheth, his life is a series of disasters, disappointments, and anxieties. It is a weary, broken, and dispirited soul that speaks in all of his utterances. This is Mephibosheth. What you're meant to see in this passage is that there is absolutely nothing about Mephibosheth that merits such grace. David doesn't, doesn't gain anything by showing kindness. And the only reason Mephibosheth receives anything is because of his relationship to another. Do you see that? It is for Jonathan's sake that David acts, and the action is rooted, that action is rooted in a covenant. You see? What a picture of the gospel. In the same way, when God shows us kindness, it is not because of anything in us, but He acts for the sake of Christ and according to the covenant of His grace that He made. Way back, way back in Genesis 3, when the whole human race was plunged into sin, God immediately sets in in motion His plan to redeem that which was lost, And it is only our union with Christ who is the eventual seed of that promise that serves as the ground of our salvation, you see. All of the riches of God's grace, all of His kindness and favor towards us comes to us because of Christ. He Christ is the only one with any real merit. Picture Mephibosheth. Just picture him. He's prostrate before the king. He was likely crippled in fear besides being crippled in his feet. Would David now, after so long, take his long-awaited revenge on the house of Saul? In verse 7, we see that instead of the voice of condemnation, he hears the voice of kind reassurance. Do not fear, 
For I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. What kindness, what matchless grace, what gospel is this? All of us, I mean, if we're completely honest with ourselves, all of us, to some degree or another, and in some sense or another, are like Mephibosheth, aren't we? We come before the throne of God. We are exiles from the garden, having lived in the land east of Eden. And we come to him in the stench of our sin, in the fear of our guilt. We come poor and we come bruised and broken and we fall before him without a plea. All of our accomplishments, all of our prestige amounts to nothing. And he welcomes us. And he lavishes us with grace, grace beyond measure. The reason why God acts with such grace is for the further display of his own glory. You see, if man could add anything to his salvation, if we could add anything to it, or we could even boast in a minor degree of merit in ourselves, God would be robbed of his glory. He would be robbed of his glory. Jonathan Edwards, the great preacher in the first great awakening, once said this, We may here observe the marvelous wisdom of God in the work of redemption. God hath made man's emptiness and misery, his low and lost and ruined state into which he has sunk by the fall, an occasion of the greater advancement of his own glory. As in other ways, so particularly in this, that there is now much more universal and apparent dependence of man on God. Though God be pleased to lift man out of that dismal abyss of sin and woe into which he was fallen, and exceedingly to exalt him in excellency and honor to a high pitch of glory and blessedness, yet the creature hath nothing in any respect to glory of. All glory evidently belongs to God. All is in a mere and most absolute and defined dependence on the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We have nothing. To glory and save Christ. You see? That's why God acts that way. Edwards also said this, you contribute nothing to your salvation save the sin which made it necessary. This truth delivers a death blow to our pride and it removes all ground for boasting. That is what the reformers had in mind with the phrase, soli Deo Gloria. To God alone be all glory. You have nothing for which to boast in yourself. Such grace is incomprehensible. Mephibosheth voices his 
amazement in verse 8 with these words. This is what he says. I'm struck by this kindness. He says, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? I have nothing. I am nothing. I deserve nothing. How could it be that you have shown me such kindness? That's a good way of restating his question. You see, our our psychologized culture cringes, don't we? We cringe at this kind of self-deprecating speech, don't we? We're not supposed to feel badly about ourselves, are we? I mean, we we might try to boost Mephibosheth's self-esteem. Mephibosheth, you shouldn't talk about yourself that way. I mean, you're not a dead dog. You've got a lot going for you. Now, I don't think it's right to kick a guy when he's down, okay? Don't get me wrong. However, I think the reason, the reason why we take the ego boost approach is because as a culture, okay, as a culture, as a 21st century evangelical church, we have lost sight of the absolute holiness of God. We have lost sight of the radiant, awesome splendor of His majesty. Conversely, we've adopted an upgraded view of man. And we've abandoned the doctrine of depravity. We cannot say today with the Apostle Paul, In my flesh dwells no good thing. We cannot say that today as a culture. We cannot say with the prophet Isaiah when he was in the throne room of the king of glory. We cannot say with him, woe is me for I am lost for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. cannot say that today. We think far too highly of ourselves. It is true, listen, it is true that man was created with value because he was created in the image of God. You can't get more valuable than that. However, that image, listen, that image has been most severely marred by the fall. And despite still existing in the image of God, man Every single one of us is a scoundrel deserving of nothing from God whose condemnation of us is just and it is right and it is good. No, no, the grace of God does not call us to look within to find our worth. The grace of God does not call us to look within to find our worth, but rather to look to Christ. Look look to Christ. The grace of God, it invades our little lives from without and restores that which was lost, placing within us our worth and making us shine. The children's storybook Bible says it this way. 
we are not loved because we are lovely. Rather, we are lovely because we are loved. Finally, we come to the third essential quality of grace. Grace is radical. David goes far beyond, far beyond the bonds of the covenant that he made with Jonathan in blessing Mephibosheth. The blessing The blessings of God's grace far exceed reason. They far exceed what we've merited or earned or even what we could ever hope for. Look down at verse 9. Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I I have given, given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. Mephibosheth's grandfather, Saul, in his sinful rebellion, had squandered away his inheritance and all the land that the Lord had blessed him with. Mephibosheth received nothing. He received nothing and he had to live in exile. Listen, in the same way our father, Adam, rebelled against the Lord and the earth was lost, squandered away all his possession. Our inheritance was completely lost. The redemption of Christ, the redemption that he promises, however, means to return it to us. All that was lost will be returned. Why? Because Jesus said, the meek shall inherit the earth. And the grace of God reaches far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. Next, we receive a picture of the kingdom in the remaining verses. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba and the 15 son, had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord, the king commands his servants, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always. Always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both of his feet. Listen, Mephibosheth is not just given a land and he's not just made a benefactor of, God, uh, of David's kindness. No, Mephibosheth is welcomed to sit at the king's table. He is embraced as a son. We are not just mere benefactors of God's grace. We have embraced, we are sons, sons, sons and daughters of the living God. What mercy is this that welcomes us? Sons, daughters. The Bible speaks uniformly of the day when the kingdom of God is established. And all the redeemed of the earth will feast 
in Zion. That day will be a day of feasting together, seated at the table of the Lord. We just celebrated it this morning. Isaiah 25 speaks of that day like this. It says, verses 6 to 9, it says, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow and aged wine, well-refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples. The veil that is spread over all the nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people. And he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. In Israel. It will be on that day. Behold. This is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad. Let us rejoice in his salvation. Friend, oh, the riches of grace that are ours in Christ. Oh, the deep embrace of God that awaits everyone who will put their trust in Him. While we were yet sinners with no merit of our own, God in all of His infinite grace sought us out. He made us His own. Listen. Do not count this grace, friend. Do not count it a cheap thing. Come. The Spirit says, Come and drink from the waters of life freely.